and welcome to Suede. My name is Sarah Osteen, and I am very excited today to be speaking with Kate Milliken, who is uh, somebody who has lived with MS since 2006 and has done it in a very public way where she's created a lot of awareness and openness around uh, around the disease. And she started her career as an on-camera reporter and a video producer. Uh, so she has a lot of experience about how to bring things to light in, in a public way. Um, I know Kate because we actually went to elementary school together and she was um, significantly cooler kid than me <laughs> somebody that I was um, just sort of knew knew vaguely but we have a variety of connections and and friendships and so it's exciting for me to to reconnect with her so Kate thanks so much for talking with me today uh, I'm really excited to be here Sarah and for what it's worth I think any kid that was older was cooler so that's the only thing I had on you just to be clear for sure, for sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your experience with, with MS. Um, it's been, I guess, now 12 years. So how has your perspective changed around this disease um, as, as it relates to your own experience? So I have kind of an unusual story with my MS because it turned out 12 years ago, I ended up being able to kind of be ahead of the curve in terms of trying to make myself better. and. Um, in 2006, I woke up one day and um, I, w- I could tell my hands were really tingly and I was really, really tired. But what was probably most disconcerting is I had this delay on my left side. So even though my brain was telling me to walk, I could tell that something was off on the left side. And by the time I called a neurologist, I ended up um, not even being able to keep my balance. And I had a really drastic diagnosis. The neurologist called me and said, there is an enormous lesion on your C4 vertebrae. And in light of the size and the scope of it, you could be paralyzed. Um, I need you to go to the hospital right now. Don't even pack. So it all happened very suddenly. And I was diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS. And I came out of the hospital and the, the I got a huge infusion of steroids, which happens with an exacerbation. And even though I was able to walk properly and things returned to normal in a motor function way. I felt awful. I was lucky enough to go to Mount Sinai, which is one of the best programs in the world. And I went to go see my neurologist a couple months after being diagnosed. And I said, I feel terribly. Uh, I feel like I have a hangover and I don't feel well. And, And he said, look, if you are holding a glass and you drop the glass, we can help you. But if you're not, if you don't drop the glass, we can't help you. That's the nature of the illness. And I bring this up because at the time, I just couldn't take that as an answer. And through a number of connections, I ended up uh, finding an osteopath in New York City named George Kessler, who, when he saw me, was like, of course, I can make you feel better, number one. And number two, that in his mind, MS was an inflammation of the central nervous system. And he wanted to know the root cause of the inflammation. So this was in 2006. And he took a bunch of tests and he found I had heavy levels of mercury poisoning. And I also had a microbiome issue so that my bacteria in my middle, I just wasn't processing nutrients correctly. So he actually put me on a regimen and said, look, I'm going to wipe out your bad bacteria, re-inoculate your good bacteria, and ideally your body will heal itself which was the first thing he said. The second thing he said was, I went to med school and I know I have been taught that you cannot reverse myelin damage, but I would, 
I, in my experience, I've seen it happen and I would plan on it. And the one-two punch of kind of possibility and a complementary methodology with my conventional treatment just set me on a course of believing that I could make myself better. So I took my conventional therapy, which was a daily injection at the time. I took all of these supplements, very specifically prescribed, and I put a little post-it on my mirror and I was like, I am going to reverse my C4 lesion because he told me I had the possibility of doing it. And I thought about it every day. And a year after my MRI, you know, I came in for my year and MRI and because I'm a video producer. I brought a camera crew in to document the moment they pulled out the MRI and they thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I came in and the M- we got the year on MRI and they pulled it out and there was nothing there. My body had healed itself and reversed the damage. And here we are 12 years later where they are proving that you can actually regenerate your own myelin. And they're also beginning to understand the power of the microbiome. So I tell that story just because my course of MS turned out to be kind of extraordinarily ahead of the curve in terms of being able to look at my illness a little bit more holistically. And I think science now is catching up with that, that immune disorders are now, you know, people are being less literal and clinical about the, you know, what they're studying in terms of the disease itself and taking a more holistic approach. And that for me, watching that is super exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. And and what has your sort of progression with the disease been like in the last 12 years? I mean, obviously you did you were able to regenerate myelin and have this fabulous diagnosis. But, and has it been sort of upwards from there? Yeah, so I have found that for me, clinically, I have been in remission for 12 years. I can tell you that um, when I have a combination of being tired and stressed and there's any sort of a emotional trigger, bad news or something deeply personal that's affecting, my right hand will go numb. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware of it. And I have actually, I have a wonderful husband and we have this system we call, it's kind of a number system. And I want him to know um, when my MS is kind of present and we put it on a scale of one to 10. So I might say, look, I'm aware that my MS I can feel my MS. He'd say, what's the number? And if I say three or four, he doesn't really say anything. But there have been a few times where I've said, I feel like it's an eight. And he will go into kind of warrior, you know, he'll, he'll, we'll shut down all my plans, we'll stop everything. And I will take the time to kind of rest and restore. And I feel better. Whether or not I have any control on my body is totally questionable. But in my mind, I actually believe I do. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at today. That's awesome. And is that, this is obviously way unique. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like most people have had this experience where they're like really, you know, 12 years later, they're in remission and it's, it's just sort of flare ups. Well, interestingly enough, um, in the past 15 years, you know, if you got MS 20 years ago, there were no clinical therapies that you could take. Um, and in the past, you know, 15 years, they've come up with, I think they're up to 15 therapies now. So actually, it has been shown more and more that if you are diagnosed with MS and you have a relapsing remitting variety, which is the most common one, um, where your body could have exasper- exacerbations, then come back to normal. Secondary progressive is kind of you start as a 10, you have an exacerbation, you come back at nine, you start as a nine, you have another episode, you come back at eight. And primary progressive is you don't really get better. You just live with MS and unfortunately get worse. 
in the relapsing, remitting realm, um, a lot of these therapies have proven to have enormous benefits. So I would actually say it is becoming more and more normal for people who are initially diagnosed with relapsing and remitting MS who go on a therapy to lead a much more manageable life. And they are now finally, um, in the past couple of years, they've come up with one therapy that helps with secondary progressive. And they're always working towards trying to find something for primary. It's just harder. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there's, it, it's two different, totally different diagnoses. It is. Way. It's actually, a, it's a different course of disease. And that was one of the biggest insights I had a few years ago is you have to treat progressive MS differently, completely from the get-go as you do relapsing remitting. Yeah, and yet they're grouped into the same category. So I can imagine. I know. Yeah, frustrating maybe for somebody who doesn't have the relapsing remitting. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't have the same opportunities here. And it's also the people who often secondary progressive or relapsing can slide into primary progressive. So there's certainly a, you know, I remember being at a conference and, you know, people bounding up on stage and someone behind me who was in a power chair saying, oh, look at the young, beautiful people. Right. And that disconnect of trying to help people in the future. And, um, you know, the people that have had it for a long time, it's certainly a harder challenge. But you know, one of the things I found from my work and whatever else is that there are ways of making yourself feel better and be better that don't necessarily have to do with medicine. Right. Yeah, no, it's so true. So kind of talking about the the influences, we've the, obviously medicine is a component of it, but you've talked about this holistic approach. What are some of the common influences on MS patients in terms of how they're affected emotionally, either from the you know, the medical perspective or the sort of psychological side of it as well. So I think one thing about MS um, that's kind of a blessing and a curse is that every case is individual. So you can get diagnosed with MS and there is absolutely no sure path of what's going to happen to you. And I think that um, when you're initially diagnosed, the fear of the unknown ends up being really scary compared to the known. You just kind of assume a worst case scenario. Um, and I think one influential moment I found, so I've spent a lot of time with MS patients, speaking to them and really wanting to hear kind of the emotional ups and downs of their experience. You know, one pain point, I think, as a population that we all experience is what happens when you're diagnosed and how are you told the news? So, you know, I, I've asked people, like, tell me about your diagnosis day. And I think neurologists often and unfortunately come up with, you know, in a moment of probably emotionality of laying down the news, say stuff that's just super unfortunate, like, you know, hearing about one person who was with his wife and he got a diagnosis and the doctor saying, you know, if you're going to leave him, like leave him now, or you're going to have 20 good years, kind of comments that really deeply affect people in this time of vulnerability. And no doubt that when you are diagnosed with any condition, uh, it's such a lonely moment. So that is like a pain point that I think that I'm not the only one that would, would be aware of that. And I think bigger institutions are beginning to realize like, you know, how do you take uh, an incredibly talented neurologist who only has, you know, 14 minutes with you and find a way where he can be compassionate and time effective? And that's really hard because I think that you know, there's a psychological element of MS in my experience and from watching people. And now science is coming around the curve, finally, 
to kind of talk about what happens if you help people not have those moments. And that's in the field of resilience, um, which is becoming a big deal. This whole concept that you can look adversity in the face and you can train yourself in different ways to handle that news, not totally negatively, but with kind of coping techniques to put it in perspective. And that's beginning to show that, you know, people are healing as a result of their mindset. I ended up starting a storytelling platform for people with MS because I wanted in that vulnerable moment for that person to find somebody else that was very similar that would be able to say, look, I know you just got this terrible diagnosis, but your MS is going to stabilize. And not only that, you have potential to have a totally kick-ass life. You know, what is the healing power of believing that in your biggest time of vulnerability? And I think it's huge. Yeah. And I, I want to get into a discussion around the the work, the community building that you've done. It, it just, it's interesting to hear you talk about how doctors present the information to patients. And it would be great if there was more training around that as well. Do you see opportunities for that? I know that's, I mean, you're obviously not a doctor, but I wonder if there's opportunities to get involved there. I wish. Um, I wish that to be so. And it's true. I'm not a doctor and I don't go to med school and I don't know how it's all laid out. But I think in this, you know, the way of the world now, um, there's so much more honest communication. There's so much more immediacy. Here's something about the clinical world that has been hard. And that is that, you know, the clinical world really moves forward with progressive ideas if they have been clinically proven, right? Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, how do you end up actually proving that somebody's trajectory of MS might do better as a result of the way you talk about it? I mean, that is a huge study or a huge objective, you know, and I think that there is a moment of kind of, you know, when you live the problem, and for me personally, I've seen it a hundred times on how people get better if they have that type of emotional support. And I am really grateful to say, you know, I just spoke with Timothy Kutzi, who's the head of programs for the National MS Society. And that is really becoming a focus is the whole power of social support and how you can actually help somebody's perspective from the get-go. So I think the, the train is moving in the right direction. It's just like moving the Titanic. I mean, it's just a slow process of, um, you know, of, of trying to change things in a way that's satisfactory to the current clinical world. Well, it, it's fascinating, and I hope that you get the chance to kind of be involved in <laughs> moving the Titanic around. Me too! Around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and if you think about some of the work that Atul Gawande has been involved with, uh, and sort of this concept of you know, looking at the way we we die, frankly, and how doctors can, can help do that better. There seems to be some connections there. He talks about how it relates to the, the schooling and that, you know, what is involved in medical school in terms of teaching surgeons and, and other types of doctors, uh, more the sort of psychological side of, of how to talk to patients. And um, you'd like to believe that it could relate here, uh, that there's just some more sensitivity around that. That's right. And again, I think that it's always important to recognize the restrictions and constraints that doctors have in the bigger system, you know, um, because I think most medical professionals get into the field because they really want to help people, you know, yeah. um, and, and how do you make that better? And how do you become more effective in being able to kind of give these emotional, positive little nuggets to help with healing? 
it's it's challenging. So it is. you talked about this choice to kind of live really publicly with MS, and obviously you have the background in in order to do that, and in terms of the being involved in video production and and on camera reporter, but and my personality and your personality, <laughs> your charming personality, and you, yeah. So I watched. So I, I watched the video of you on the dating show. Was that like an uh, ongoing uh, thing, or was that a one time event? Blind date. I'm sure anyone who's in the early 2000s, late 90s might remember blind date. And I just happened to be in a building where they were shooting Blind Date and they begged me to do it and I did it. So yes, uh, no, that was a one-off. <laughs> and as you can tell from the end of the piece, I did not fall in love with that guy. No. Um, <laughs> I'm super happy to report I did find a guy to marry who's amazing. Yeah. Um, but it took a while. It took a while. Right. And you are also in the midst of dealing with this diagnosis, right? Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I ended up finding the guy, uh, Tyler, the guy I married two years afterwards. Um, but you know, a couple of times I went out on a date and from the get-go, I decided to front that information. So, you know, even within like a month of being diagnosed, I go out on a date and, uh, you know, or the second date and I would just say, yeah, you know, I have MS. And I would say, do you know what that is? Because one thing I found is often, I mean, when I was diagnosed, I thought I was like Michael J. Fox. I did not know, yeah. you know, the difference between Parkinson's and MS or whatever. Sure. And the greatest part about MS is you get to say, look, MS is a complete crapshoot. I could either be in a wheelchair in a year um, or a couple of years, or I could never have an, another exacerbation again. Like it's a complete gamble. And I think there is a wonderful rationale of when you front that type of information in a semi-confident way, um, you know, people appreciate it. And, uh, and it ended up not being a hindrance for me actually finding a dude to marry uh, who just decided that he was willing to take that gamble. And it's worked out great. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. And then that should give a lot of hope to people who are in the same situation, who are single and getting a diagnosis like this, that, yeah, in your words, you can still go on and live this incredible life. A hundred percent. And actually, when I was diagnosed, I was 35 and single in Manhattan, which okay. is like almost worse than having MS, right? right. Uh, and, uh, and I ended up meeting my guy, um, you know, when I was 37. We got married at age 38. So yep. it did work out. Yep, I was I was a late late to get married as well. So later yeah. than you. <laughs> it, it has benefits for yes. sure. Yep, yep. And then uh, also as part of this, you went on to have two kids. So clearly your your body is healthy enough to do some amazing stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, happiness plays a big factor in that too. You know, and I was I couldn't have been happier when I met Tyler, and uh, and I was in a really good place physically. You, yeah. Is that I don't even know. Is that a part of MS that sometimes there's you know, trouble. So interestingly enough, when you get pregnant and you have MS, actually quite often all your symptoms dissipate. There's something hormonal that happens that's absolutely wonderful. That's um, crazy. The sucker, I know, the sucker punch about it, however, is after you give birth, you're twice as susceptible to an episode. So for people living with MS who are on a therapy also, often they have to go off the therapy. So there are a lot of factors you have to kind of gauge to make that decision. And I've had women that have flown through their pregnancy and not had an episode. I know women who have gotten pregnant um, and unfortunately gotten sicker as a result of it. Again, it's all individual. Interesting. But you've never seen happier pregnant women in your life <laughs> than the women that have MS. They rarely complain. That's awesome. Um, because they feel good. They yeah. feel really good. Well, and they also know what it's like to feel really bad. So Yeah, yeah. totally. 
Cool. So, so you've gone on to create uh, my counterpain, which is a, a place for people to like tell stories and come together around this. And why is this? You know, well, tell us a little bit about it, and I'd, I'd love to know more about just why it's a, such a positive influence on patients. So, um, I should probably start by saying that my counterpain, what I created, is currently um, dimmed. Right. Yep. Um, I spent five years kind of launching this startup, and it was a storytelling platform that aimed to create the largest library of firsthand moments of what it was like to actually live with MS and some other conditions that was searchable. So to go back to what I said of, you know, when you are diagnosed with anything, I think it's one of the loneliest moments you'll ever experience. More and more is being proven that loneliness kills. The Surgeon General called it the greatest epidemic of our time. It has negative biological effects. And I set out to create a way that in that moment of loneliness, you could find exactly what you needed. So within the platform, we created a storytelling tool where when you shared your story instead of one big long monologue it would it would guide you to remember your emotional ups and downs so a user would have to pick one of 13 emotions ranging from happy hopeful determined grateful all the way down to angry lonely scared sad overwhelmed a date and why they felt that way and what would come out is a visual graph of somebody's emotional journey and it would break someone's story into these kind of emotional data points, and pieces of content. So I set out to fix the problem of having to watch 20-minute, really long YouTube videos that were really hard to find what you were looking for. And I think we accomplished that. So, so you could go on to my counterpane and you could say, I'm looking for a 35-year-old woman with New York with relapsing remitting MS who's on Copaxone, who's scared. And what would come up in the activity feed were moments. What became interesting is, you know, kind of unexpectedly, we started following the emotional journey of the patient and the caregiver over time. And that started to produce a really interesting data set because you could watch how people felt emotionally, you know, as they connected and supported each other. So it was incredible. The reason why we uh, are currently dimmed is, you know, ultimately I set it out without necessarily a recognizable revenue model. And we were asking people to be extraordinarily vulnerable online, which in this day and age is hard. The people who decided to partake in my counterpain, they found amazing people that made them feel better automatically. On average, they would comment four times more than they posted. They would spend on, you know, on average 12 minutes a session for over two years. So what ended up happening is we really created this kind of real support group online that ultimately created unconditional love. And that was great. So it served an incredible purpose trying to drive that type of technology into a hospital, into a bigger platform proved really challenging. And I think that there are elements of the storytelling tool that we created. Uh, I want to believe that it will revive in a different form. We're just on a moment of pause on how best to take what we learned, which is um, when people connect in a vulnerable time and they support each other over time, they start to feel better and they actually start to raise their sense of life purpose. So we actually brought in Johns Hopkins and we started to do a study for a year and a half. And we found that people, when they get out of their own life and they spend time helping others, they increase their sense of life purpose by over 30%. 
and they had less suicidal thoughts. So I know that the work that we did of creating an online peer-to-peer support group started building incredible tools of resilience. And again, as science is beginning to show, resilience is where it's at because you can actually change your own mindset to better your sense of optimism, connect with others in a social support to help them, which gives you a sense of purpose. I mean, there are a number of resilience factors that can be learned that make you feel better. So that's kind of what happened. I've watched some of your videos, which are incredibly raw, you know, from the beginning. And, you know, for me as an outsider, what I imagine being powerful is like, wow, look how far you've come. Is that a component of the, of it as a, a benefit for people using who, who are using it? Or is it really more around just being able to connect with other people and have other people provide support? Sarah, I, I mean, people talked about that because, so we have people that had 1,300 posts, right? Because if you're, we call this technique moodifying. So if you're moodifying every day for over two years, you got a, you got a lot to say. And people found themselves surprised and amazed by the progress you've made. And, you know, I often say, like, I don't know any of these people, but I know how far they've come. And that is enormous. And anyone who's listening that has MS knows that when somebody who has been struggling to walk for a year says, I walked to the mailbox today, how big a deal that is, especially if you can understand the emotional play-by-play of how long it took to get there. So I think there's something enormously powerful that I think about a lot about connecting people to others who from the get-go, you have a sense of relatability and supporting them over time. I mean, it just, it turns into like one big warm fuzzy um, because you're just so proud of people and the sad days, you know, you really actively want to support others. And I, you know, again, it's, you know, the issue is there are a lot of people with MS who can't get out to a support group, who can't have a group of friends and go to a movie. And it's like, how do you not only get them connected to someone that can make them feel better, but what would it be like for them to understand that in our world, they're like a wise elder. They still have so much to give. And that's where I can get a little fiery. Like, don't ever tell me that somebody who is, you know, a quadriplegic or blind as a result of MS doesn't have a lot to give because I've watched it over and over that those people in some ways are the most powerful. Yeah, they need, they need each other, that they also need to tell their stories, um, the power yeah. of that. Yeah. So, and they're so rich. They're yeah. so rich, those stories. Hard. Yeah, I didn't even so. think about the blind piece of it. Was there technology yeah. for people who are blind? Yeah. We've never had um, somebody who is fully blind on our site. However, often with episodes of MS, um, one of the things that happens is optic neuritis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a friend that knows an episode is coming because his eye goes gray and then the next day he's blind. And then it comes back, which is pretty crazy. So So. here you are. You've been so great about talking to everyone about it. You've been on the Today Show. You've written articles for National MS Society and a myriad of different magazines. What is it going to take to be able to really build community around this? I think that science is coming around. So I will certainly, you know, I remember in 2007 when I worked with that osteopath, George Kessler, you know, one of the things he brought up along with the supplemental therapy was diet 
right? And he knew after doing some testing that I just wasn't supposed to eat dairy. It definitely inflamed me. And there was an article that came out in the New York Times some years later that talked about the correlation of dairy and and the immune system or whatever else. In the past 10 years, I have been at numerous and numerous places where I have watched the clinical world. The subject of diet has come up and I have watched the clinical world fundamentally roll its eyes, right? So someone might say, hey, doctor, you know, I found that I'm feeling really good when I eat a lot of spinach. And a doctor might say, you know, I don't like, I'm not even going to respond to that because it's not clinically proven. So there was this huge disconnect about diet. It has become in the past few years, uh, the greatest, most talked about topic on social media in the MS space. There was a very famous woman named Terry Walls who got herself out of a wheelchair through her diet. And now finally the pendulum is beginning to turn, right? They gave Terry Walls a ton of money to do some research. They're doing studies on diet. And now this kind of clinical world is more open. So my response to you is, I think it's going in the right direction, but you know, I don't know how much you can rush formal science. And I'll tell you, you know, the thing that I'm most interested in is the mindset and the attitude and the reframing of your perspective. So I know I'm talking a lot, but I'll just tell you one more quick anecdote, which is when I went for my MRI a year later, when I brought the camera crew into Mount Sinai, I made a little video about it. Um, and maybe you can put the link on the um, in this podcast, Sarah. But I told my doc- my doctor told me the news, which we recorded, and then I recorded telling my parents how my lesion had reversed itself. And my parents are at the dining room table, and they look horrified. I'm starting to tell, give a toast, and then I tell them the news. And my father, they both have such a sense of relief. And my father gets up from the table. He moves off the dining room table and he hugs me sobbing because he's so grateful that I'm in a better place. So I have an incredible neurologist at Mount Sinai named Stephen Krieger. I adore him. And he said to me, Kate, you know, when an MRI is stable in the world of MS, like, that's okay. Like, that's good. That's like a neutral point in the healing journey. And he's like, I used to come into my office and I'd shut the door and I'd say, so you're my stable and let's get together in six weeks and call me if you have any questions. He's like, as a result of watching the reaction of your parents to your news, I now walk into my examining rooms with a stable MRI. I come in the door, I shut the door, I turn around and I say to the patient, your MRI is stable. Well done. Mm. What is the healing power of that and how do you measure it? Because I speak from experience, it is so real and so helpful in the journey. Yeah. So basically, I don't have the answer no, for you. I just know it to be no, true. You know? I, I mean, I, what, so I'm very interested in power dynamics and what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, you're trying to further this effort where you're providing hope and and insight to MS patients that this diagnosis doesn't have to be something that makes you miserable and that you can go on and live this great life. And what's impeding that is that doctors don't necessarily understand the importance of that or, or, or see the impact of it. And so it feels like you're working to change that by you know, raising right. some awareness. I mean, I, you're raising awareness with a lot of different people, but if it seems like that is like 
one of the key sticking points, right, is, is that they don't understand how important it is to share information in a way that's really positive. Yeah, and, and frankly, simply empower the patient, right? So let's go back to the example of, hey, you know, doctor, I'm noticing when I eat spinach, I feel better. Good for you. If it make, I, there's no clinical proof that will show me that spinach is making your MS better, but anything is, you know, I do believe impossibility. And I'm so glad to hear that you're finding something. Like, be sure to tell me more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? What, and that whole thing of patient power. And again, this whole world, I mean, even in the world of pharmaceuticals, right, which ultimately get a bad rap for a lot of reasons, but they do create this incredible medicine. They've started to realize, you know, the power of patients and the power of patient power. And I think that, that that's a trend that's happening where patients are their best own advocates. And the importance of not only being knowledgeable going into an appointment, but believing in yourself. You know, if a white-coated doctor tells you you have an illness that could take you to a loss of mobility and death or whatever, to believe that it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen and that you do have some sort of power. Oh. Yeah, no, it's, it's... And how that manifests to make your life not necessarily cure your illness, but make your life better. Right. Yeah. So raising that awareness with patients that the belief in it and the knowledge around it actually could Im- improve the status quo. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's next for you and, and how do you want to continue to impact the lives of people who, who have MS? So I really believe that there is a, you know, I'm, I'm highly aware of the power of a personal story, um, especially the power of a story that starts at a tough place and ends at an amazingly strong place. And I was a sole entrepreneur who built my own technology and then worked really hard to bring a community into it. And in the realm of like entrepreneurial difficulty, that one scores pretty high, especially because technology changes so often and whatever else. And I hope my technology comes back to help people tell their story. I think in the short term, my interests are going to be more geared towards finding people have incredible stories of bouncing back and resilience and really trying to draw attention to the subject. So as I've said, I go to Mount Sinai and at Mount Sinai are some of the best researchers on resilience in the world. A guy named Dennis Cherney um, is one of them. And trying to talk to him about how do you uh, throw out kind of the world of, you know, the knowledge about resilience and the factors involved and how to use them. And he has an, inc- an incredible book called Resilience. And in the first page, on the first page, in the first sentence, it says, in our lifetimes, over 90% of us will experience some sort of traumatic event ranging from um, a debilitating illness to rape, to domestic abuse, to a terrible car accident. 90% of us will experience this problem. And why aren't there more obvious ways of how to handle it that are more public? So I'm really thinking a lot now of how to tell stories um, that will incorporate that research and showcase people who have done it, who have come from a place of like such horrible trauma who persevere. And I I think that story in this world never gets old. Right. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You know, I'm just thinking about sort of communication styles. I mean, obviously, you are very comfortable to talking to people. You have, uh, you know, from what I can tell, sort of an extroverted type of personality. How do you 
attract people who you know would benefit from services like this, but might not necessarily feel as comfortable being as public about it? That is a great question, um, because ultimately those are the ones that need the most help. You know, one idea that I've had as I kind of think about making some video or television is asking people to nominate someone that they love who has an astonishing story of resilience, um, what that would feel like. Because I think, you know, in this day, I mean, it makes me feel emotional because I think in this day and age, in one's own neighborhood, everybody knows somebody who they're really impressed with for so many reasons. And often those stories are, you know, the underdog. So can you take kind of a community element to finding those people to showcase? And I don't know the answer, but that's kind of my response to you now. Well, this is so exciting and I, I'm just in, incredibly impressed with your perseverance around this and really trying to lift people up who have this diagnosis and help them realize that they can that they can go on to live a, a really powerful and important life. So I, I appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. Yeah, um, thank you, Sarah. I'm so glad to be here. And I really, I think what I'm most excited about, about being part of this podcast, just to reiterate, you know, the whole, the whole look at power, right, that you are doing with your work, and how important it is as a patient who feels like shit to understand that they still have it um, is probably the biggest takeaway. So I really, really appreciate coming back full circle. It's like amazing to think that we were hanging out when we were 13 and now I'm 46. (laughs) But it feels very cosmic, you know? Oh my gosh. You were like cool and beautiful and everybody wanted to be around you. And I was about as awkward as they come, but um, it's... Oh my God. That's great. That is hilarious. Well, all I know, my mother would be the first to say, you seem to forget that I used to have spiky hair and 11 inch rat tail. So whether or not you think that's beautiful is very interesting, but that's for a later a later discussion. <laughs> well, Kate, thanks so much. And, and maybe, uh, you know, I can, if you'll be open to coming back and talk to me again at a later date, and we'll talk about what, what you're working on next. Would love it. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Thanks, Kate. 